This is Macro Horizons, Episode 70, Early Close from Home, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of May 26th. As the summer quickly approaches, the mantra will shift to social distance makes stocks grow fonder. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just passed, the Treasury market saw the reintroduction of the 20-year note at $20 billion issued on May 20th, 2020. It tailed 0.2 basis points. Relatively strong demand overall, and further evidence that it's less about the amount of supply in the Treasury market and more about the overarching macro factors that will set the outright level of rates. In that context, we continue to anticipate that the trading range in 10 year yields will persist for the time being. That range is 54 to 78 basis points, and as Friday opened at roughly 65 basis points, solidly in the middle of that range, we see very little reason to anticipate the range will break for the foreseeable future. Defining the foreseeable future is always a challenge. However, in this case, it's going to be less about the passage of time and more about the relative success or lack thereof in the reopening of the domestic economy. The economic data that we're getting at this point is still solidly in the middle of the pandemic, and so investors have been heavily discounting it. With the exception of some of the optimism that we have seen play out in the equity market, the overarching theme has been one of staying the course. Range-bound trading in and of itself isn't exciting. However, there will be opportunities once we get to some of the extremes. What will take us to those extremes? That remains to be seen. A breakout in equities would do it, although the 3,000 level in the S&P 500 clearly remains elusive. The upcoming supply into month in seems unlikely to be the catalyst. One of the biggest takeaways from the week just past was the fact that the economic data in April appears to be marking the near-term low, at least in terms of the soft data. So, for example, the Philly Fed print marked a bounce in May after April's dismal showing. Another key takeaway was the re-escalation of the trading war between the U.S. and China. China's decision to impose greater constraints on Hong Kong is being interpreted as further saber-rattling and does nothing to lessen the tensions between Washington and Beijing. This sentiment has weighed on risk assets, at least during the overnight session. While we don't have a strong read on the next developments in the ongoing trade saga, one thing's safe to say. It's clearly part of Trump's re-election bid, and as a cornerstone of the campaign for November, we expect trade tensions to be with us for a very long time. The Fed minutes offered a little bit of insight in regards to the potential for a yield curve cap. 
Well, previously, the discourse had been focused primarily on Brainerd's comments. What we saw was during the last FOMC meeting that there were several participants on the committee who found merit in the idea of choosing a level for front-end rates and defending it. We don't expect that this will be a near-term transition for the Fed. However, it is another tool in the Fed's toolbox that can be employed if and when the recovery stumbles or simply takes much, much longer than many market participants are currently anticipating. So it was another week of stocks doing relatively well, and yet the range in treasuries holds. We had new bonds, we had the FOMC minutes. But still, 54 to 78 basis points. Here we are. That is clearly the equilibrium in the treasury market, or at least the 10-year sector for the time being. We've been on about how it's highly unlikely that that range is going to break until we get a much better sense of how the post-pandemic economic landscape will ultimately develop. Now, that doesn't mean there are not trading opportunities within that range. And any time we start to move toward the extremes, either the lower or the upper bound, that's going to be an opportunity to fade the move. What will drive that falls into the realm of non-traditional influences at this point. Given the simple fact that all the economic data is still solidly in the crisis period, we don't know what the post-lockdown world is going to look like. So that leads the market content to trade off of the success or lack thereof of the reopening efforts. Now, there are no clear gauges or economic data that we can look at as we head into the Memorial Day weekend to determine whether or not social distancing is successful until we get the updated COVID-19 stats over the following weeks. So as has been the case throughout much of the pandemic, the market is left flying blind to a large extent. I will say, just as an aside, that the ballooning treasury deficit and the associated auctions have been taken down in relative stride, all things considered. Ben, what did you think of the 20-year? Supply continues to be a primary theme of this year's treasury market, and we, and we did get the new 20-year bond on Wednesday. The fact the new bond was taken down without a hiccup really has to be encouraging to those at the treasury department and long-duration investors, as even the larger-than-expected auction size, $5 billion larger than what some of the consensus estimates were, The fact that the new issue was taken down, and really the market barely noticed, is a very good sign for the supply process generally. And looking back to last week, additionally encouraging is the sponsorship that met 10s and 30s. Sure, we got a couple basis points of a concession on the curve going into 10s and 20s, less so for 30s. But nonetheless, the fact that demand remains so strong, even at such low yield levels, continues to point to the fact that supply is not at immediate risk of breaking the treasury market. Ben, going into the 20-year issuance, one of the risks of offering supply at that point is that it would cannibalize demand away from 10s or away from 30s. So basically, it would just spread out pre-existing demand across more tenors rather than bring in new investors to the market. Was there any evidence of that dynamic at play, or did Treasury kind of find a sweet spot where they were able to attract more demand than they otherwise had in the past? Well, looking at the 30-year result, one could make the argument that there was a slight downtick in demand there, but the fact that the breakdown of the auction bidding statistics more or less lined up with 10s and 30s reinforces the idea that there can be buyers of 20s, not necessarily at a huge expense to 30s or 10s. And part of this has to do with the classic bond contract and the fact that down the line, the new 20 will be a great candidate to be delivered into that future. 
The caveat that I might add on this front is that everybody loves a new bond. And so coming out of the gate with strong demand for duration in an environment like this isn't really shocking. I would have been surprised if we had a tail north of two and a half or three basis points. That would have been a very strong indication of saturation further out the curve. So this implies to me at least that the bigger test for 20s isn't necessarily going to be the first auction but it will be how the sector is performing in the latter part of 2020 when we will have more bond supply coming online as well as hopefully a transition into the recovery stage for the real economy with budding inflationary pressures that are sure to follow. Ian, to circle back to something that you kind of alluded to earlier, now that we're approaching Memorial Day, some of the seasonal or summer factors might come to mind. I guess my question is, how are you thinking about that, given 2020 is obviously such a unique year in financial market history? Well, one of the classic technical drivers in the Treasury market has been the seasonal factors, which tend to be incrementally bearish at the beginning of the year. And then the Treasury market has historically rallied from May until September with September 15th marking the lows in a typical year. Now, the pandemic has thrown every playbook out the window, and we're less compelled to look to the traditional seasonal patterns for guidance in the current environment. Rather, there's a risk that the animal spirits, upward pressure on rates, and general bearishness, particularly for the longer end of the curve, has been delayed somewhat. Whether that means it's delayed by 12 months or six months is going to largely be a function of how quickly the domestic economy is able to get back online. And at this point, we're simply not getting the incoming information to have a strong skew on that. But once we get through the second quarter and the details of the economic performance during the summer months start to take shape, I anticipate that at that point, the treasury market will be primed for a more significant repricing. Whether that's bullish or bearish is going to be a function not only of the domestic, but also of the global economy. And of course, as has been the case over the last several weeks, rates are largely contained in a range with some of the intraday fluctuations being beholden to performance in the equity market. And it's widely assumed at this point that the summer months will show a rebound for base effects if no other reason. And to me, the question that this raises is, what probability of another round of lockdowns is priced in? One has to imagine that investors are readily acknowledging the fact that as summer turns to autumn turns to winter, we could very well see another material pickup in infection. And while it's not entirely clear that that will result in a repeat of the stay-at-home orders, the business closures, etc., there is certainly at least a chance of that priced into the market, and yet risk asset valuations remain quite lofty. So I guess this brings up the question of what would need to occur in order for us to see a retest of the lows, either in yield terms or stock terms. My first reaction would be that we'd probably need to see the second wave of the pandemic infections overshadow the first and suggest that if and when a second lockdown occurs, that it will be even more lengthy than the first. Actually, what we've started to see, at least in the Northeast is that the antibody tests suggest a higher previous infection rate than we had anticipated going into the pandemic, which obviously implies a lower mortality rate. That fact alone could make it difficult for universal lockdowns to be re-implemented. 
One other thing that I'd be watching closely that I think you'd need to have in order to retest some of the lows in stocks is a reduced political will for additional stimulus. One of the reasons why financial markets have continued to function, why risk assets have been supportive, have been the extremely aggressive actions from both the Fed and Congress. Now, if we go into a second wave, if things start to slow or become more ominous, the Fed's already at zero. The Fed's already launched a QE program and launched a crisis program. It's hard to see them rolling out something of equivalent scale in response to further slowing. That puts the onus on the fiscal side, but we're already starting to hear chatter of concerns around debt levels. For example, McConnell is said to have told Trump that the next stimulus has to come in under a trillion dollars. So if we find ourselves in a second wave, in a period of slowing, and don't have the same type of aggressive official sector support, I think that lays the groundwork for additional downside. Powell's Fed has made it very clear that they're willing to act and act aggressively. But John, to your point, there's only so much that they can do beyond limitless QE, which is currently in place. Sure, they could increase the sizes of some of the operations, they could expand further into new asset classes, or one of the things that we've heard a lot of chatter about recently are yield curve caps. That got some play in the FOMC minutes. John, what was your takeaway from that? The idea of yield curve caps isn't necessarily new. Governor Brainerd in particular has been pushing this for several months now as a possible forward guidance augment, basically. What was interesting in the minutes is the description made it sound like there were several members that rather endorsed the idea. Clarida actually said so publicly this week. And really, all yield caps would be in practice is the committee saying, we're going to keep rates at zero for quite some time. Therefore, say out to call it five years, if Treasury yields are above some level, we'll just basically buy an unlimited quantity until they're back below that level. So say they pick that level to be 25 basis points. In essence, it's just the committee coming out and saying we'll buy all the treasuries out to five years until yields are under 25 basis points. Now, at this point, five-year yields are already at 35 bips. So sure, maybe this will help the belly outperform on the curve, but we've already seen the market largely price this in. This is more of a augment of current forward guidance than anything truly revolutionary. And then the other final nuance I'd point out is if they're able to communicate yield curve control well, they don't actually really have to buy anything extra because the market will know there's a price insensitive amount of demand above whatever that yield cap is, and it'll immediately price to the cap or below. So as long as the Fed has a credible commitment of demand at that point, the market will incorporate it and you'll see lower rates for longer, which really is what the committee is trying to achieve. And looking forward to next week and the theme that will continue, which is gauging the speed of the recovery and the pace of the reopening, we do get the Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index. And on some of the soft data, think surveys, sentiment, more generally, it will be especially topical to see whether the bottom in the data that appears to be coalescing around April is also reflected in the sentiment measures. Now, we've seen a pickup in a variety of manufacturing gauges from regional feds. So if, in fact, the sentiment in households around the country is beginning to inflect higher, that maybe the worst is behind us and people will begin getting back to work. If, in fact, we do start to see that move higher in sentiment, and April has proved to be the depths of the crisis, 
That's a very encouraging sign for the economy. And Powell emphasized this week the importance of confidence, the importance of the mindset of the individual to actually venture outside, begin spending again, and ultimately reignite consumption, which will pull the economy out of this recession. Ben, I think that's absolutely right. What I'm going to be watching very closely is the labor market here, because when I think of consumer confidence, the fact that asset prices have bounced, aka 401k balances are a bit higher, that's good for confidence. The fact that we're seeing improvement on a lot of the pandemic metrics, that's good for confidence. But at least as of the most recent initial jobless claims, we're still seeing multiple million people file for claims every single week. Now, that in all likelihood will prove rather temporary. We're going to see a huge amount of hiring as soon as things start to open up. The sustainability of that confidence, though, is really going to be a function of how many people are able to get rehired, how many people are able to get back to work quickly. Because if there are a lot of frictions there and you're starting to see households not able to re-enter the labor market immediately, to me right now, that's kind of the biggest threat to confidence, but is also a very, very difficult thing to forecast. That has been a unifying theme of the pandemic is that we have a great deal of uncertainty and that uncertainty has resulted in two trends that I really think are going to prove durable. One is a lower definable trading range for U.S. rates and upward pressure, albeit at times somewhat perplexing, on risk assets. As long as there is confidence in the largesse of the Fed and global central banks to continue to pump money into the system, I think these two realities will be with us for the foreseeable future. Foreseeable future? I want to see a five-seeable future. I mean, John, at this point, I would take a two-seeable future. Cabin fever. The struggle is real. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a variety of economic inputs to provide trading direction, the biggest being the update of consumption on Friday via the personal spending and income figures. Core inflation in the month of April is seen declining seven-tenths of a percent, which is a very dramatic move. We'll also get the revisions for first quarter GDP, but with the tracking for second quarter GDP putting the numbers at negative 30 or below, we expect that the dimmer economic outlook going forward will overshadow the week start to the year. Let us not forget it will be a holiday-shortened week with Monday closed for Memorial Day. There will also be three auctions of note. There's the $44 billion two-year on Tuesday, followed by $45 billion fives, and then capped by $38 billion seven years. All of this unfolds with the background of month-end buying demand. Our primary themes remain solidly in place. We anticipate that the range will hold in the Treasury market. The shape of the yield curve will be the only directional nuance of note. And with 210 solidly at 50 basis points, any bearish impulse will press that curve steeper. Same also holds for 5's 30s. The biggest unknown from the Memorial Day weekend will be the success of social distancing practices. This is important not only insofar as it will slow the spread of COVID-19, but also it will allow consumers to transition into the new normal. We've long maintained that eventually the new normal will become the normal, and between now and the point where a vaccine is readily available, the lingering impacts of the pandemic will define commerce going forward. 
given that there are no obvious data sets to judge the success or lack thereof in social distancing. What investors will be watching for is how the COVID-19 stats play out in the following weeks. To a large extent, the market has conceded that once the economy reopens, there will be an uptick in COVID-19 cases. One of the big uncertainties is whether or not that spike is significant enough to translate into another lockdown. The consensus assumption at this point seems to be that it will not translate into another round of shelter-in-place orders. However, if that were to occur, that would be a significant hit to risk assets and be one thing that could conceivably lead to a rethink of the macro narrative and thereby reprice treasuries to a lower rate plateau. Otherwise, we're simply counting on the passage of time, the slow healing of the U.S. economy, and the building inflationary pressures to keep rates at some version of an equilibrium until later this year when we anticipate upward pressure, particularly on 10s, 20s, and 30s. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As the Memorial Day weekend promises to be defined by social distancing, our Midwestern upbringing here is six feet and wonders, why so close? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. 
This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter. And information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.